Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. God, he said quietly. Isn't the sea what Algy calls it? A grey, sweet mother? This not green sea, the scrotum tightening sea. Epi oinapa pontum. Ah, Daedalus, the Greeks. I must teach you. You must read them in the original. Talata, Talata. His project as an author was not just to evoke the city, but to build it up in words, in his text, to restore it to power and also to awaken all its inhabitants. For that day, everybody is a, a Joycean scholar and everyone has their favourite song and everybody is a Molly or a Blazes. Stately, plump Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead, bearing a bowl of lava on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. That's the opening sentence of Ulysses by James Joyce, his sprawling, magnificent, monstrous masterpiece. T.S. Eliot called Ulysses a book to which we are all indebted and from which none of us can escape. And Virginia Woolf described it as the excrescence of a queasy undergraduate scratching his pimples. Ulysses was first published in book form in Paris 100 years ago on Joyce's 40th birthday, the 2nd of February, the second month, 1922. Ever since, it has scandalised, intimidated and obsessed readers, and it has been the yardstick against which subsequent novelists have been forced to measure themselves. As Anthony Burgess wrote, everybody knows now that Ulysses is the greatest novel of the century. Hello, and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode, I'll be drifting around Joyce's Dublin, tracing the footsteps of Stephen Dedalus and Leopold Bloom. Now, Ulysses famously takes place over a single day, June the 16th, 1904. It starts at 8am in the morning, and it begins on the top of a Martello Tower on the coast in Sandy Cove, just on the outskirts of Dublin. 
And I'm standing at the top of that very Martello Tower now, looking out over the sea and round to Dublin Bay, which curves round in a huge sweep of land um, in a really rather spectacular way. And it's my pleasure to introduce at the top of this <laughs> Martello Tower our guest for today, Anne Fogarty, the Professor of James Joyce Studies at University College Dublin. She's had that position since 2006, and of course, University College Dublin is James Joyce's own alma mater, so very, uh, very appropriate place for a chair of James Joyce Studies. Anne has written and spoken widely about Joyce. She's organised three international James Joyce symposia and was president of the International James Joyce Foundation from 2008 to 2012. So really, I couldn't think of a better person to be joining us today to talk about Ulysses. Anne, welcome. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you very much. And it's wonderful to start here in the Martello Tower. And Joyce chose this location because he had spent a few days. He had stayed with these two friends, Gogarty, who's Buck Mulligan, a kind of dandyish, wildian figure in the, the novel, and Haynes, whom he casts as an Englishman, who, mm-hmm. but who actually is Irish, with an Anglo-Irish um, background. And... The tower itself is symbolic simply because of its vista. It seems to be bringing a a kind of a stage Englishman and two stage Irishmen together and it gives us a kind of mini drama, all the animosities between these three men. From a very practical point of view, it's a really spectacular place to set that opening scene and for a novel that's so um, intrinsically set in Dublin, it's a wonderful spot to get this get yes. this incredible, yes. you know, we can see the whole of the setting of Dublin. This yes. is, the city is here in front of and us. And you can see the hinterland of Dublin, so you mm. see to the, the Dublin mountains, as they're called, they look like hills, in fact, mm. and you get this wide panorama. Yes. But there's also a sense that we're on the edge of things. We're yes. on the seashore, and we're looking towards the UK, but also towards Europe, Um, the Mediterranean. So for Joyce, this place connects Ireland with the world, but it also introduces us to the the big problem of Irish history, the fact that Ireland is a colony in the period, occupied still by Britain, and colonised by many other things as well, by the Catholic Church, by Irish subservience, Irish politics. And just rewinding a little bit, can you remember how you first got interested in in Joyce and what was your introduction to his work? Um, I think I'm unusual in being one of the academics who came to Joyce later in that when I did my um, degree in English, there was very little 20th century literature. Um, So Joyce for me was kind of extracurricular. (laughs) I studied German and spent uh, a summer in Germany. And that's when I started reading Ulysses. I sort of rediscovered my own literature and so on and Joyce seemed perfectly European and different and other and difficult and so I wanted to tackle him. Fantastic and well we'll talk a bit later about you know how Ulysses was almost entirely written on the continent so that feels rather appropriate that you uh, came to him there. Now yes you mentioned this opening scene is this uh, sort of dance between these three friends in this quite confined space of the Martello Tower and in particular one of those characters becomes one of the key characters of the book, Stephen Dedalus, who readers of Joyce would have already known because he is the central character of a portrait of the artist as a young man. And in many ways, he is a a kind of autobiographical character, very similar to Joyce himself. So, Anne, can you just, for our listeners, introduce this character, Stephen? He's 22 years old at the start of 
Ulysses. What's he like as a character? He's disaffected. He has returned from Paris. He is an artist in the making, although he writes very little. Um, He's a version of Joyce, but he's also not Joyce. He seems like a continuation of the Stephen Dedalus that we all identify with in a portrait of the artist as a young man, but yet he's somehow other, and he seems somehow stranded and marooned. He's lost his way. He has returned to Dublin like Joyce himself, summoned because his mother was dying in the, in the summer of 1903. Uh, Stephen is still in mourning for his mother. He has refused to pray at her bedside, which would have been a major failing in, in the period in an Ireland that was totally devotional and religious and Catholic. And am I right, Joyce did the same. He also refused to pray at his mother's And Joyce was devoted to his mother. His correspondence with his mother is remarkable. And so the death of his mother really marked uh, Joyce, but also marked Stephen, the character. And it's untransacted. So in the course of the novel, Stephen um, has to deal with the ghost of his mother, the ghost of his own rebelliousness, and try and make sense of all, all of this. Fascinating. And he has this phrase, doesn't he, um, Eigenbite of inwit, which recurs a few times. And that, I think it's a quotation from old, an old English poem, but in a very concise way, it has that sort of, that inner angst contained in it, doesn't it? Yes. Eigenbite of inwit. Yes, indeed. And it also captures what is part of the, the big artistic project of Ulysses, to get inside our heads and to get inside the minds of the characters. I guess the phrase we use most often to describe this effect is stream of consciousness. It's not um, really precise. It doesn't capture everything that Joyce does, um, but he gives us a sense of the way in which we interact with the world unconsciously, mentally, psychically, emotionally, all the time to the the language of his characters. And their thoughts keep disrupting the narrative of the novel. And in terms of uh, Joyce himself at the age of 22, you know, he, in many ways, is very similar to Stephen. He'd lived in Paris for a little while. He comes back to be there at his mother's bedside. And in 1904, when the novel is set, he was also sort of a bit listless and, and sort of drifting around Dublin, not sure where the future was going to lead him. Yes, he imagined many different kinds of vocations for himself, even though he always wanted to be an artist. He seems always to have been the the chosen member in his family. He came from a big family of siblings, but his genius was always evident to everybody that he met. He very conspicuously made friends or introduced himself to all of the members of what we know of as the Irish Literary Revival, W.B. Yeats, A.E., who is George Russell, Lady Gregory, and so on and John Millington Singh, whom he meets in Paris. Dublin is very intimate and close-knit in the period. They meet this young man who's written very little, some a few poems and what he calls epiphanies, little prose poems, vignettes, but they're all immediately taken by Joyce. He's impossible. He's arrogant, brilliant, radical, a contrarian. Um, He refuses all their ideas. He admires them to death. Um, He's an absolute devotee of Yeats and Singh, but he's also adamant he's never going to go their way. He famously said to Yeats at the end of their interview, you are too old for me, um, that he's met Yeats too late for Joyce to influence him and to, uh, to change him around. So he seems to have been absolutely preposterous on one level. The ultimate 
um, everlasting undergraduate who was against <laughs> everything, but um, absolute radical as well. And and people were convinced by him even before the writing really got going. They knew he was going to write these brilliant works How in some ways. And Joyce himself sort of pre-knows it too. Fascinating. Well, before we head down, I just uh, let's just savour the scene from up here and and. Remember that opening moment where Buck Mulligan is is shaving himself on this very parapet where we're standing. And there's that wonderful moment where he sort of addresses the sea that we're looking at now with the words of Xenophon, Thalata, Thalata, and and famously describes it as uh, the snot green sea, the scrotum tightening sea. Well, today, I have to say, it's not snot green at all. It's beautifully <laughs> twinkly blue in a most lovely sunshine. Uh, and I think it almost never is snot right. green. But this, of course, is a snide comment about Irish nationalism, oh, the right. greenness of Irish nationalism. Right. But it's also toppling. It's iconoclastic as, as a description of, of the course. sea. Possibly not realistic at all, but absolutely memorable, of course, Very as well. memorable. And I suspect that... Uh, the sea probably is scrotum tightening, even if it's not. I'm uh, sure. <laughs> That's for people of a certain anatomy to, <laughs> yes, ex- to, to, to explore. To explain. <laughs> we're uh, we're looking that we there are several swimmers down at the 40 foot uh, gentleman's bathing place where Buck Mulligan, of course, swims at the end of this episode. We've actually just hopped into a, a taxi cab now and we're heading back into central Dublin. But on this journey, let's just talk about the, the next couple of episodes in Ulysses because when Stephen first leaves the tower, he first makes his way to, actually away from Dublin, into uh, Dulkey, the village yes. of Dulkey, where he visits the school where he's working as a, a teacher and has an interview with the headmaster. And am I right... Joyce himself worked at this same Summerfield Lodge school yes, for a few years. Yes, weeks. and the, the, the building still survives. Brilliant. So that's um, the second episode. And then when Stephen leaves the school, he travels towards Dublin along the coast and stops for a walk on Sandy Mount Strand, the beach that stretches between this part of the bay and the city of Dublin. Yes. And this is a wonderful episode known as the Proteus episode where we really get inside Stephen's mind and inside his poetic way of thinking, would you say? Indeed, yes. And the the style changes. This Mm -hmm. is one of the the first episodes that really experiments with this so-called stream of consciousness. And Proteus is the, the god of change, of metamorphosis, so language becomes very malleable and some people find Proteus as an episode off-putting um, but I love the, the poetry of it, its literariness, Stephen's meditations on life uh, it's vulgar as well, Stephen is urinating, picking his nose there are two right. old women who are thought of as midwives who are bringing maybe a kind of aborted fetus to the strand. Gosh, and, and yeah he describes walking on the sand and the very beach is breathing upward sewage breath it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's dirty. yes, and and these are all the layers of history in Dublin time and the layeredness of a city as well. It's full of detritus, rubbish, but all full of meaning um, from the point of view of the artist and a thinker like Stephen. Definitely, I found reading Ulysses as a newcomer, this is the first episode where you, you think, OK, this is harder than what I've read before. And you, I think, I hope I'm getting to where you are and where you can kind of embrace that. Yes, I think there's a, 
a kind of competition amongst non-readers of Ulysses uh, about the point where they gave up. <laughs> some people stop even sooner than Proteus, but right. some decide this was it. This, <laughs> this did the man. Um, but uh, one thing to do with Ulysses is to listen to it. It's very oral and performative, and you, you kind of get over a lot of your difficulties if you hear actors voicing it um, for you, and you can go with the flow of the text much more. I'm sure you're right. Let's let's um, talk about how it came to be written. It's famously on the final page of Ulysses. He writes, Trieste, Zurich, Paris, 1914 to 1921. Yes. And that's to indicate that he wrote this book during literally during the years of the First World War in three different European cities. What was the process of writing this book and how did it come to be published? Of course, it's a long work. It's an epic work, so he writes it slowly, relatively slowly and incrementally with great difficulty while he's enduring all kinds of dislocations. He himself is in exile, exiled by the First World War, um, there's the border crossing from the Austro-Hungarian Empire into Switzerland, Feldkirch. The train is stopped there while uh, Nora and um, Joyce and the two children are fleeing. And he says that the, the future of Ulysses was decided on this track because he was uh, worried that they would be sent back and he would have been interned. Nora um, was his wife, of course. We're going to talk about her later. Yes. So luckily he got to Zurich and then gradually they moved on to Paris where the rest of Ulysses is, is, is published. And yes, you're right, the, the major conflict of the 20th century, the big upheaval of the First World War, is the backdrop of the novel implicitly and of course also the 1916 rising in Ireland. One scholar has said that Ulysses has a date and a duration. There's the one day, 1904, but there's that period of composition unfurling in the background. Anne, can you tell us how Ulysses came to be published? Because it initially was serialised in America, is that right? Yes, and uh, Joyce, with all his works, ran into censorship problems. Some of it had to do with his hyper-realism in the first instance, say, with Dubliners. Um, the publishers were taken aback by the fact that he was naming real-life individuals, uh, real-life institutions, pubs, shops and so on, and they were worried about uh, litigation. But, of course, there was also the scandalous, uncensored aspect of all of Joyce's embrace of the, the world, uh, which was found to be shocking. Um, his very frank discussions of the the human body. Um, And Ulysses is heroically published, serialised in the Little Review, but not completely. It constantly came up against objections from readers. So 13 and a half of the 18 chapters were serialised between March 1918 and December 1920. And then this court case stopped the serialisation. And Joyce had endeavoured to get the book published in lots of different places. Hogarth Press, for instance. Yes, Virginia Woolf read it, didn't she? And I think wanted to publish it, but it was just too much on that That's it, yes. Often uh, Woolf is seen as someone who uh, was antipathetic to Joyce just because she she made this comment about him as being like some undergrad. We um, heard that Picking his acne. But at the same time, she she was very much inspired by him. And Mrs. Dalloway is another kind of remodelling of Ulysses in, in a feminine. Um, vein, um, but they don't publish. And so once again, another heroic woman steps into the breach, and this is Sylvia Beach, mm-hmm. who basically privately, she 
finds the, the funding, creates subscription lists, and has the book published. And now uh, she's in, living in, in Paris. She's running the bookshop Shakespeare and Company, indeed. which still... And she, like a lot of the other people who encountered Joyce, absolutely believed in his genius. Um, so th- it's not an accident that it's published, but there were a lot of obstacles put in Joyce's way. So we're, we're now, the taxi's just pulling into central Dublin, and... We're approaching the moment where we're going to meet the second of the main characters in Ulysses. So we're now in central Dublin at one of the most famous addresses in literature. We're standing on the site of Seven Eccles Street, which is the home in the novel of Leopold and Molly Bloom. The original Seven Eccles Street doesn't exist anymore. It's now, uh, there's a large red brick private hospital on the site, but there's a plaque on the side of the hospital with a relief bust of Joyce with his round spectacles peering out of it sideways. In fact, he's kind of pinning me with his blank stare at the moment. And in fact, if we look on the opposite side of the street, we can see number 77, which is uh, very similar to how number seven would have looked. Anne, can, are you happy to describe it to us? What, what does the house look like? They're four-story um, red brick. There's a basement area. And another facet of the layout of the, the houses that's interesting is the very large drop into that basement area, mm. what Bloom actually had to do. Yes, had uh, to break into his house um, at it, the end. Uh, you, would ha- you need to be quite athletic okay. um, um, to do this. Um, so they're, they're quite grand houses in their own rights, but they became tenements in in due course. And that's why these houses were looked down upon, actually, in modern um, Dublin. I might explain why Eccles Street just disappeared. Joyce knew the house because a friend of his had sublet it. It's fictional and it's real. Mm -hmm. Now, Leopold Bloom, who lives here at number seven Eccles Street, is in many ways the main character of Ulysses. In some ways, he is the Ulysses of the novel. And maybe this is a good moment to talk about the fact that this novel is called Ulysses and that it's modelled on this great sort of foundation epic of European literature, the Odyssey by Homer. Of course, the, the, the Latin name of Odysseus was Ulysses. Yes. And what Joyce does at this point in the novel is is rewinds. We started at 8am and then we, we yes. went through the next few hours. We're now back at 8am again. That's right. Ulysses um, in effect begins twice. Right. And that is a direct reference to the Odyssey which has a opening section all about Telemachus, Ulysses' son. And then there's a sort of cinematic edit and we're now with Odysseus, and we follow his story through. And so, like yes. that, we're now with Bloom. But, and can I ask, you know, what was Joyce doing by modelling this great modern novel on the most um, fundamental epic work of ancient Greek literature? Um, he was doing many things. Um, it's precisely what you called it there. It is fundamental. So he's going back to a kind of ur-text, ur-literary text, but it's a text that's at a crossroads as well between the oral and the, the written. Uh, Homer was many figures. He wasn't a single historical Homer figure, we think. He's an amalgam of, of a, a lot of different writers and of oral texts that were passed on and, and preserved. And Joyce sees himself in a similar position. Um, but also Homer gives some quintessential narratives. Adventures, wandering, return, 
fidelity, treachery. The Odyssey is an epic that has a lot of war stories implicit in it, but it's an epic about aftermaths, what comes next, what comes later. And about because, of course, it's a, it, it follows on from the Iliad about the Trojan War. Yes, it's, it's the yes. return from but it. But it's not about Troy. war, per se, mm. even though Odysseus is a warrior. Right. And then when Joyce was writing Ulysses, he thought each episode in his novel as being explicitly modelled on an episode from the Odyssey. And he would talk, you know, in his letters to friends and so on, he would refer to them by these names, like this episode where he introduces Bloom was called Calypso, for instance, which is where we first meet Odysseus in the Odyssey. But he chose not to include those titles in the book. And how do you feel about these parallels? Because do you... Do you feel there's a sense in which he, they're useful to him in the writing process, but he wants to distance himself from it to, to some extent? I think he arrived at that point, and that's what a lot of the early scholars of Joyce and Ulysses also thought. So uh, Ezra Pound, for instance, and friends of Joyce, and they saw it as a scaffolding that he needed, a way of promoting Ulysses in advance. You know, he would tell people, I'm, I'm writing uh, a novel based on Homer's Odyssey. Um, but that then he grew away from it, that he could pull the scaffolding away. One of the reasons he was devoted to the Odyssey was he read first Lamb's children's version of the Odyssey and in fact has the same episodes in Ulysses as Lamb featured in oh, the first version of the Odyssey that he wrote as a young boy. Now before we leave this spot, let's talk a bit more about Bloom. So he is um, 38-year-old... Jewish, Irish advertising canvasser. He works for a newspaper sort of arranging advertising by brokering deals. And can you tell us more about this character? Introduce our listeners to Leopold Bloom. For a lot of people, Leopold Bloom really is Ulysses. He's pivotal. I think he's one of the most beloved characters in 20th century literature. We all find ourselves in him. We I all are Bloom. I completely agree. We'll talk about this across the day, but he's just such a warm-spirited man. You, you sort of warmed him instantly, I think. Yes, uh, and he's quirky, eccentric. Yes, yes. He does the wrong thing sometimes. He's perhaps a very surprising figure because he's a Jewish Dubliner, so there was a small but quite influential Jewish population in Dublin in the period. And Bloom actually isn't representative of the Dublin Jews of the period, some of whom Joyce would, would have known. Um, Bloom has a greater kinship with the cosmopolitan Eastern European Jews that Joyce knew in Trieste and in Varens. Like, for instance, the author Italo's favor, I think. There's exactly, exactly, yeah. But he's Irish. He's one of the few characters in the novel to claim Irish citizenship. Um, he belongs to several different religions and none. So he's a perfect cosmopolitan displaced individual, a kind of cipher of the, the modern hero. Now, we've already had one breakfast scene at the Martello Tower, but we, we meet Bloom preparing breakfast for his wife, Molly Bloom. And, and Molly, of course, is a, an amateur opera singer, a little yes. bit younger than Leopold. And they have a daughter, Millie, who, again, we don't meet. She's yes. living outside of Dublin. She's yes. 15. And importantly, they have had a baby son called Rudy, Rudy. who died as a baby. 11 days, yeah. And he returns to Leopold's thoughts over the course of the day. Now, this episode, which introduces Bloom, sets up various strands which we're going to follow through the novel. One is that he's dressed in black because he's going to be attending a funeral today. It also sets up his relationship with Molly because when the Morning Post arrives, it includes a letter which he knows 
is arranging an adulterous meeting for her later that day. Yes. Um, and that, of course, will return. And also it sets the, the kind of scatological tone which often accompanies uh, Bloom because there's a famous scene where he goes out to the outhouse in the garden and reads a couple of columns of the newspaper and we read between the lines of what he's doing in the lavatory. But let's, uh, let's move on now. It's a beautiful sunny day here in Dublin. And let's leave the house as Bloom does in this opening um, episode. He sets off to buy the food for his breakfast. So let's follow in his footsteps now. He crossed to the bright side, avoiding the loose cellar flap of number 75. The sun was nearing the steeple of George's church. Be a warm day, I fancy. Especially in these black clothes, feel it more. Black conducts, reflects, refracts, is it? The heat. But I couldn't go in that light suit and make a picnic of it. His eyelids sank quietly often as he walked in happy warmth. Boland's bread van delivering with trays are daily, but she prefers yesterday's loaves, turnovers, crisp, crowns, hot. Makes you feel young. You get... This is north side already, so you already get a sense of Joyce's Dublin because it's it hasn't been gentrified much. This episode opens with the line that um, Mr. Leopold Bloom ate with relish the inner organs of beasts and fowls. Yes, amazing opening sentence. Yeah, and we're with him now on his way to the local butcher to find those um, inner organs. Yeah, and it's amusing and quirky it gives us a sense of bloom already and he's he's essential as somebody who ingests the world takes things in eats things so we're passing what used to be larry o'rourke's pub which was the pub that was there right now it seems to be called the eccles townhouse a cafe bar and deli but we can imagine it as o'rourke's Leopold has a little thought where he says it, it would be a good puzzle would be to cross Dublin without passing a pub. Yeah. <laughs> I like that idea. You still can't do it. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, what? walking as we are through Dublin, Joyce was born in Dublin, grew up here. All of his works are set in Dublin, and yet nearly all of them were written somewhere else. Why do you think this city was so important to him as a writer? There was a sense in Dublin in the late 19th century, Joyce was born in 1882, that Dublin had ceded power. It was once a grand city, but after the Act of Union, when the centre of government moves to Westminster, um, Dublin became, as one historian calls it, a deposed capital. And... Joyce, I think, had a sense from the writing of Dubliners on that what his project was as as an author was not just to evoke the city, um, but to build it up in words, uh, in, in his text, to restore it to power and also to awaken all its inhabitants. He's also just steeped in Dublin lore and knowledge through his family and particularly through his father, who was um, a witty man, full of anecdotes and scurrilous stories about characters in, in Dublin. And Joyce, in a way, was modelling himself on his father and continuing this, this history onwards. 
I love that. He he once said um, that he was more interested in the street names of Dublin than in the riddle of the universe. Yes, and when people visited him in Paris late in life, that was one of the games he would play. He would go up and down a street mentally with them, naming the shops <laughs> and other buildings, and they would tell him what had changed in the meantime. Wow. So we're just walking down now towards O'Connell Street, one of the one of the largest streets in Dublin, which leads down to a bridge over the over the river. And this is a good place, perhaps, to talk about the next episode in the novel, which is known as Hades. And a large section of that episode is a journey by um, horse-drawn carriage through the streets of Dublin towards the big cemetery in the north of the city where Bloom is attending a funeral. And one of the concepts within the Hades chapter is not just that they're attending a funeral of Paddy Dignam, but that also Dublin is a city of the dead, so that literally all around them are vestiges of dead things, and particularly the statues that they pass on the main streets. Um, O'Connell Street is still punctuated by very many of these statues that are in the same position. Some have moved, are being duly noted as kind of calcified emblems of various conflicts in Irish society. So, for instance, we're standing now next to the Parnell Monument, which in 1904, in fact, was just a foundation stone, and they, they comment on it as they pass it, but now it's standing there in the middle of this large traffic junction. It's just a foundation stone, so unfinished. So it gives you a sense that the the whole project of Parnell, Home Rule for Ireland, Irish independence, freedom from British rule, is unfinished, but also maybe has stalled, has come to a halt. And Bloom thinks about the foundation stone in terms of what happened to Parnell in quite romantic terms of breakdown and heart, that he died of a broken heart because of being betrayed by some of the Irish people who turned their back on him. So after the funeral, the next episode in the novel shifts location from North Dublin down to here in the very centre of the city. We're standing on Middle Abbey Street now, which is one of the streets off O'Connell Street. And the action moves into the offices of the newspaper, The Freeman's Journal, which was a real daily newspaper published in Ireland. It, It was later absorbed into the Irish Independent, in 1925, and that paper is still published daily. Yes, but not and from here. Anymore. Not from here. We're standing outside the offices. Uh, it looks rather boarded up right now. Yeah. yeah. But the, the, the action moves here because um, Leopold Bloom is doing some work now. And am, am I right that Joyce's own father occasionally took work as an advertising canvasser with the journal? Yeah. So Joyce would have known what this involved. It's an episode about rhetoric, um, which is one of the symbols of the episode, about language, but language in all its forms. Even the machines talk, the typesetting machines within the office are part of the things that, that we hear. And the discussion is about the Irish language, also about events in Irish history and how information gets passed into um, newspapers. Of course, this episode, has an unusual format because, you know, appropriately for a newspaper offices, it's um, organised as a series of headlines and then paragraphs under the headlines. Increasingly, the headlines seem to bear almost no relation to what comes underneath them, but it, you'd wonder if that is even a comment on the state of the Indeed, press. Indeed, and they're often 
comic, very, very vivid, but they seem to go off on a tangent. Right. So it's language doing its own thing. Joyce actually added the crossheads very late in the writing process. Um. So certainly it mimics a newspaper, but it's doing something very different to newspaper style. Um, but it's Joyce certainly uh, looking at the way in which we encounter language in the modern era, where we see snippets that are discordant, that don't necessarily mesh with what the article beneath it, for instance. And gosh, that's only increased over the last yeah, century, hasn't it? I know, I know. Wow. Yeah. Stephen Daedalus leaves um, and goes with some friends to the pub Mooney's, which is still there, just on the other side of O'Connell Street. His father, Simon, comes out and goes to the Oval pub, which I'm looking at now. It's a little bit closer. And Bloom heads out of the newspaper offices and walks towards the National Library in order to consult an advert in another newspaper. So let's uh, follow in his footsteps towards O'Connell Bridge. And now we're yes. standing on the bridge over the River Lithian, the real, really the heart of Dublin here, aren't we? Yes, indeed. And the city, in a way, now has turned its back to the river a good deal, but it would have been very lively in Joyce's day with a lot of uh, traffic on the, uh -huh. on the river, goods being transported, basically, particularly um, barrels of Guinness being exported. That, <laughs> right. that Bloom sees yes, when he right. stands here in Estragonians on, uh -huh. on the bridge and feeds Banbury cakes to the seagulls. Yes, so initially he, he throws a piece of paper at the seagulls, right? Yes, and, the throwaway. And they, uh, uh, and they a, sort a of pun. squawk at it. And, yes. um, and then he feels guilty, but he's cheated the seagulls. Yes, and, and then feed, feeds the girls, but then is slightly disgusted by what they do. We've crossed the bridge now. We're going to pass the front entrance to Trinity College, which yes. as Bloom passes, he, he just comments Trinity's surly front. Yeah, most of his allusions to Trinity are quite disparaging. Is that as uh, as an alumnus of university yeah, college? Yeah, there's, there's still a rivalry between us. Trinity was the Protestant foundation, so you couldn't have attended Trinity in the period as a Catholic. And even in quite recent eras, people who went there who were Catholics had to get permission from their bishop Gosh. to attend Trinity because wow. it was seen as a godless university. <laughs> wow. Now, it's at about this point, sort of more or less when he's passing Trinity, that the famous Irish writer A.E., the pseudonym for George Russell, passes him on a bicycle. And actually, George Russell enters the, the novel less fleetingly a bit later on, so we'll talk about him a bit later. But it's yes. another of these sort of linking moments where a character passes Bloom and then meets Stephen later. Yes, and Russell is linked with the strand of the literary revival that Joyce was interested in, but also tended to satirise those who were interested in theosophy and mysticism and vegetarianism and so on, and, and Russell is linked with this, this group. Aha. Uh -huh. So Grafton Street is ahead. Okay. Now, like Bloom, we're about to step away from the, the tram lines and the road onto the yeah. pedestrianised Grafton yes. Street, one, yes. of the, one of the key shopping streets in Dublin. Indeed. As it was in 1904. Southside, anyway. We're just passing um, a rather smart department store called Brown Thomas, which, um, which Bloom also passes and pauses outside. He says... Um, dallying the windows of brown thomas silk mercers cascades of ribbons flimsy china silks a tilted urn poured from its mouth a flood of blood-hued poplin 
lustrous blood. And well, there's no, um, there aren't uh, sort of cascades of silk, but there are some um, very impressive window displays still in the windows of uh, Brown Thomas and gold uh, sort of globes and moons. And um, you can imagine that Bloom would have stopped to dally here when yes. he'd been walking past. And you, you can see how the different senses are intermingling here. The, the materials in the wind are reminding him of food, and the food yes. in turn is awakening his appetite, reminding him he's hungry, but it's also turning into disgust. Yes, with the blood. And, and one of the symbols, or one of the ways in which the imagery in the chapter works is not just that people are eating and ingesting food, but that the whole of Dublin is a big digestive canal, and all of the citizens are being passed through as tracked, oh being my chewed goodness, up like and a big eaten gut up. Kind of, wow. Well, like rather like Bloom, um, who gets increasingly hungry through this uh, chapter. Yes. I'm also starting to feel rather hungry, so why don't we go, like Bloom, let's turn the next corner and look for somewhere to eat. Yeah. So we're just turning off Grafton Street now into Duke Street, and this is where Bloom in the novel is really getting hungry and looking for somewhere to eat. And now on our left here, is a restaurant which today is called the Bailey Bar and Cafe. Um, in 1904, it was called the Burton Hotel and Billiard Rooms, but it's the same, same building, still a, a restaurant. And initially, Bloom thinks he's going to eat in here, and he steps inside, right. and it's one of the most sort of grotesque descriptions in the novel. He says, um, stink gripped his trembling breath, pungent meat juice, slush of greens, see the animals feed, men, men, men perched on high stools by the bar, hats shoved back at the tables calling for more bread, no charge, swilling, wolfing gobfuls of sloppy food, their eyes bulging, wiping wetted moustaches. Just, and it goes on, I mean, that's just a, a sort of um, a moment, but it's just a horrible description. And um, of course, in, in the Odyssey, the, the episode that this, this section is based on is the Lystragonians who were cannibals. And, um, and yes. so you get this image of the sort of grossest elements of, of, yes. of eating. And it's also just the perpetual cycles of material in Dublin as well, that things that get eaten, of course, in due course, get turned into waste, but in turn, the waste will recirculate. Um, so the, this is a novel full of rubbish and detritus and shocking items like, like these descriptions. But this this is all part of the patterns of life that, that Joyce wants to represent. Uh -huh. But we don't want to be too down on the Bailey Bar and Cafe today. And in fact, um, this is an important spot for, um, for us today because when Seven Eccles Street was finally demolished, a group of writers, including Flann O'Brien, clubbed together to save the, um, the original front door of Seven Eccles Street. And for a long time, that door was on display here at the Bailey restaurant. So That's they right. preserved it for a long time. It's not here now, and we, we may find it yeah. later today. Yes. Um, but uh, Bloom sort of staggers out of um, this restaurant. He can't bear to eat in there. And instead crosses the street to the pub Davy Burns which he just describes with a very simple two-word description, moral pub. Yes. And, um, you know, at the time, Davy Byrne still ran the pub himself. Yes. Bloom describes him, he says, he doesn't chat, stands a drink and now and then, but in leap year once in four. <laughs> so yes. only, only occasionally. And it's here that he goes for lunch. And rather remarkably, Davy Burns, the moral pub, is still operating, still called Davy Burns, and we're going to pop inside and have some lunch now.
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, we've just come out of uh, Davy Burns. Leopold Bloom, of course, has a, eats a gorgonzola sandwich with mustard with a glass of burgundy. And sadly, that wasn't on the menu, unfortunately. But we managed to have some deep fried chunks of gorgonzola and a glass of burgundy. So we got, um, we got close. But anyway, after lunch, Bloom comes out of Davy Burns and uh, heads on towards the National Library. So let's follow in his footsteps in the same direction. So we've just crossed over to in front of the Irish Doyle, the, the, the Parliament building. And on either side of the courtyard, we can see the, the sort of mirror images of the National Library and the... National Museum. Yes. And in this episode in the book is known as Scylla and Charybdis after the monsters from the Odyssey. Yes. But in a way, the, these two sort of opposite buildings feel a bit like these kind of uh, counterparts facing each other across this courtyard. Now, here we are outside the library. And this, Anne, is, is really a key location for Irish literature, right? All the great Irish authors have walked up these steps and into the yes. front door there. Yes. You know, Yeats, Singh, George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde, you know, all the, the most famous names of Irish literature have congregated at this spot. Yeah. Stephen is already in the library before Bloom gets here. And he's sort of holding forth on yes. his theories on Shakespeare. Right? Yes, and it, it's one of the, the highlights of the day. It's already been flagged for us by Haynes and Buck Mulligan in the opening episode. They know this, this is what Stephen is going to do. It was also a very significant moment in Joyce's own life. His theory of Shakespeare was something that he evolved in that key year, 1904, in the summer. 
and curiously as well, Stephen the artist delivers what seems to be like um, a literary critical lecture. So it's a grand disquisition. Stephen in this library building does gather some real literary characters around him, including A.E. George Russell, who we saw on a bicycle earlier, who's yes. part of his audience as he's talking. And in fact, George Russell has this rather good line about Joyce himself. He said that Joyce was proud as Lucifer and writes verses perfect in their technique and sometimes beautiful in quality. Now, at the end of this episode, on the steps just where we're standing now, it feels like these two characters, Stephen and Bloom, are sort of spiralling around each other in the novel and they've had near misses up till now. This is the first time they actually cross paths, but they don't speak. Bloom enters the library just as Stephen is leaving it. Yes. And um, Stephen steps out and uh, there's this rather lovely moment turning to look at Kildare Street where it says, The kind air defined the coins of houses in Kildare Street. No birds. Frail from the housetops, two plumes of smoke ascended, pluming, and in a floor of softness softly were blown down. Almost reminds me of that moment at the end of the dead with the the snow falling. Similarly Um, sort of... yes. Now, the next episode in the book, episode 10, is, is an unusual one. It's, it's known as The Wandering Rocks. Mm. And in some ways, it's a sort of interlude in the middle of the novel. It's one of the central chapters. And it's an interesting format because the episode is split up into 19 sections, each of which features a, a mini journey round the streets of Dublin. And they're all happening simultaneously. So certain characters appear in one and then reappear in another because the characters are crossing over. Yes. And um, I believe that Joyce, you know, sitting in Zurich or wherever he wrote this section of the novel, he would work with a ruler and a compass and a, yeah. and a stopwatch, like working out exactly where people would be at certain points and how it could all mesh yes. together. How do you see this, this episode of the novel? In Proteus, Stephen thinks about Nebenanander, things beside each other, and then Nachanander, things that are in a sequence that come after each other. Uh-huh. So it's Joyce trying to calibrate the sense of the simultaneity of the city, of things that coexist, but also cut across each other because you have interpolations, kind of what look like confused bits of text when you're reading Wandering Rocks, at least certainly for the first time, from a later section that disrupted an earlier one and that you only recognise later so he's also alerting us to how the reading experience works because we can't take in everything simultaneously but he is playing with the idea of the urban and everything coexisting in different temporal planes and spatial planes So we're walking now through Marion Square towards Hollis Street where yes. the maternity hospital is we're going to skip quite lightly over the next three episodes of the novel Sirens, Cyclops and the controversial Nausicaa episode which is as we mentioned earlier the reason why the serialisation in America had to stop and we've mentioned a couple of times his life partner Nora Barnacle and maybe this is a good moment to to talk a little bit more about her. So they met in 1904. She was uh, working as a hotel chambermaid in in Dublin. And one of the reasons that Joyce sets the novel on the 16th of June is that that's thought to be the date of their first... Walking out together. Walking out together. Yes, yeah. 
Yes, indeed. Um, so the dates cluster together in, in June. And it's, in fact, the day they walk out um, towards the, the bay and supposedly the day she first gives them a hand job. So it's, there's a very so maybe there's sexual a, grounding right. element to the day. It's so been seen Nautica as romantic and sentimental, but there are other elements to it as well. And Nora worked close to where we are in Finn's Hotel, which no longer exists. But Nora is a remarkable figure. I suppose conundrum in some ways. She definitely was radical and experimental. You didn't need to be a writer or an author of Ulysses to be radical and experimental in the period. Uh, A Galway woman who had um, a troubled childhood, got beaten for seeing men, was brought up not by her mother, but by a grandmother whom she loved. She's very stylish, obviously, uh, loved the European fashions that she was able to wear later in life. Always strikes a pose. So this is a woman who knew her place in the world and she was being absolutely radical in going away with Joyce unmarried without declaring the relationship to almost anyone at all. Her family knew, I think, a little bit. Joyce's family knew a little bit more when they eloped, as one would say, in the period to go to Europe with no notion of what the future held for her. And she had no continental languages and she was utterly dependent on Joyce. But she remained always a very independent figure. Sometimes she's castigated for not reading Ulysses enough, Um, but she made Joyce's writing possible. And they were inseparable. When Joyce was in hospital, she stayed in the room with him overnight. Well, didn't when when Joyce's father heard that uh, he was with a woman called Barnacle, he said, well, she'll stick to him anyway. Yes. (laughs) And she did, yeah. Well, now we've moved off the square and we're standing on Hollis Street just outside the National Maternity Hospital where I can see a plaque which uh, says James Joyce set the Oxen of the Sun episode of Ulysses in the original National Maternity Hospital which stood on this site. This brings us, of course, to to the next episode, episode 14, known as the Oxen of the Sun, which in some ways it's a very key episode in the book because it's the moment where Bloom and Stephen finally meet properly for the first time. It's also one of the hardest episodes in the novel. One of the hardest to read and by all accounts one of the hardest to write. I mean Joyce said it took him a thousand hours to write this one episode which is not the longest. And And yet it mirrors the project of Villasais overall. Mm. Joyce's aim to get his revenge on English literature and the English language, but also to completely raid it, to use all the resources, literary resources, at his fingertips and on his bookshelves, and to use them in this holy Irish epic and do something different. So the the different sections of Oxen of the Sun are difficult because they, they mirror or mimic different phases of English literature or written in the style of different authors in different yes. eras, like Mallory and so on. You know, it's the National Maternity Hospital and, and Bloom has yes. popped in here to check on his friend, yeah. Mrs. Purefoy, who is, who's been in labour for a few days. And mirroring the nine months of pregnancy, Joyce follows the whole history of English language yeah. literature through yeah. nine different yes. sort of pastiches, really. Before born babe bliss had, within womb one he worship, whatever in that one case done commodiously done was, 
A couch by midwives attended, with wholesome food, reposeful cleanest swaddles, as though forthbringing were now done, and by wise foresight set. But to this, no less of what drugs there is need, and surgical implements which are pertaining to her case, not omitting aspect of all very distracting spectacles in various latitudes by our terrestrial orb, offered together with images divine and human, the cogitation of which by subjunct females is to tumescence conductive, or eases issue in the high sunbright, well-built fair home of mothers when, ostensibly far gone and reproductive, it is come by her thereto to lie in, her term up. I think a, a disconcerting facet of Oxen of the Sun is the offstage labour of Mina Purifoy, who's had multiple pregnancies, and this is a prolonged labour, um, because we don't see it. It's, it's a kind of collateral effect of, of this language. So as the narratorial voices are giving birth to the different styles of English literature, this poor woman in her umpteenth yes. pregnancy is giving birth to a child. It also seems strange that this is a gathering point for these men. Yes, I mean, part of the reason Stephen is there is that he's with medical students. Yes. They're waiting to meet Buck Mulligan, of course, yeah. who is a medical student. And the medical students in Dublin were notorious at the time, weren't yes. they, for being these drunken rakes, really? Yeah, and most of the things that happen in Ulysses happen in public spaces rather than private ones. A lot on the street, of course, but in hotels, restaurants, bars and places like the National Maternity Hospital. So it's another kind of meeting point where the, the city gets together and certain frictions are yes. enacted. And of course, in a novel that attempts to encapsulate every facet of human life, we've had death in the cemetery, we've now got the moment of birth it's yes. you know everything comes into this novel yes. apparently when Joyce was writing this section he, he he planned his writing by using a huge onion shaped diagram but he would amend with different coloured crayons yes. and um, I can only imagine how complicated it must have been to sort of draw these strands together now Stephen leaves with one of his friends to catch a train to visit a brothel in the night town section of Dublin and, and Bloom in a sort of paternal way decides to follow him discreetly and keep an eye on him to check he's okay. So let's, um, we're not going to catch a train, we're going to catch a, another taxi and follow the streets um, through the night town part of the novel. Yeah. So, so we've hopped into a cab now and um, maybe as we're sort of heading through this part of the city we could talk about the 15th episode, Circe which centres on Night Town, the, the red-light district of Dublin. The area was known as Monto. It was one of the worst slums in Western Europe, with something like 2,000 prostitutes in a very small area. And uh, Stephen approaches on what Joyce calls the Mabbott Street entrance of Night Town. And rather ironically, Mabbott Street has since been renamed James Joyce Street. I wonder what he'd think yes. about that today. But this... This is the longest episode in the novel, yes. and in some ways it takes the form of uh, almost a kind of dramatic performance. There are stage directions and, and speeches, and it's, it is increasingly hallucinatory and psychedelic. Many ghosts appear. Paddy Dignam returns from the grave. We mentioned earlier that Shakespeare appears. Even little baby Rudy appears as an 11-year-old boy in Bloom's imagination. 
It's an extraordinary episode, isn't it, Anne? Yes, the the longest episode in in Ulysses. It's been compared to cinema as well, theatrical too. One of Joyce's ambitions as a young man was to write for theatre. There's also something transactional about the the episode. Everything speaks. The bar of soap speaks. Everything right, has objects, a voice. Uh, yes. And things are topsy turvy. It's a world turned upside down. We've stepped out of the cab now. We're on uh, North Great George's Street, and there are school boys walking past us, Belvedere coming students. coming from Belvedere, which of course was Joyce's school, the Jesuit school where he was a boy. So we can imagine him among these crowds of uh, of young students. At the end of Circe, Bloom finds Stephen having been knocked down by a couple of British soldiers, and Bloom comes to his assistance in the way that. Joyce was once helped out on the street after he'd got in, in, into an altercation. And Bloom supports Stephen as they walk. They try and catch a cab, as we've just done. In Way fact, they, they can't um, catch it. And uh, they end up in a cabman's shelter, one of these wooden structures, where a kind of motley group of <laughs> night walkers have gathered, including this um, old sailor who tells them stories while they drink coffee and... Yes and eat. And after this episode, known as Eumaeus, Bloom decides to take Stephen back to his home on Eccles Street. And so they walk back through the city, turning the novel back in, into a kind of full circle, bringing Bloom home to yes. Eccles Street again. Yes. What parallel courses did Bloom and Stephen follow returning? Starting united both at normal walking pace from Beresford Place, they followed in the order named Lower and Middle Gardiner Streets and Mountjoy Square West. Then, at a reduced pace, each bearing left, Gardiner's Place by an inadvertence as far as the farther corner of Temple Street North. Then, at a reduced pace, with interruptions of halt, bearing right, Temple Street North, as far as Hardwick Place. Approaching, disparate at relaxed walking pace, they crossed both the circus before George's church diametrically, the cord in any circle being less than the arc which it subtends. So we've come into the James Joyce Centre now. We're standing in their beautiful courtyard and it's such a pleasure to welcome Dorina Gallagher, uh, who's the director of the James Joyce Centre. And Dorina, thank you so much for having us to visit. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. I told you about the seagulls, so here they are, <laughs> arriving just on time. Perfect. So, Dorina, can you tell us a little bit about the centre and, and the work you do here? The centre runs as uh, a visitor centre, um, welcoming tourists and welcoming them to the centre to show them a little bit about uh, Joyce's life and his literature, but also we're lucky enough to explore Joyce's legacy, which I'm really excited about. So we host lots of events and workshops, supporting artists and thinking about, about Joyce's legacy in lots of different ways. Fabulous. I'm, well, I'm sure he'd be just thrilled with the work you're doing and it'd be great shortly to talk about the legacy of Ulysses and how it's, it's gone on growing and growing since it was written. But 
I'm feeling quite sort of excited because here in the courtyard where we're standing, we've just been talking about how Leopold Bloom and Stephen Dedalus are heading back to 7 Eccles Street from the cabman's shelter. And here we are standing by the original front door of 7 Eccles Street, which remarkably has been preserved and is now here at the centre. I mean, Dorena, can you describe the daughters, how it looks today? I love this door and I'm so happy we have it here. People coming to visit the door as, a, as an act of pilgrimage almost, and they can't believe they're here at this quite um, modest Georgian door with fan light. It's in a little state of uh, disrepair. Um, perhaps Molly and Leopold didn't get a chance to, to paint it and scrub the knockers. And so it's a modest Georgian door, uh, not too tall. Um, and I, I feel it, it's a really special symbol. It's of a wonderful thing to have preserved. And a door especially is such a sort of resonant object, isn't it? You, you're sort of looking at it and I keep almost expecting it to open and see a Leopold yeah, sort of coming yeah. out of it. It's, it sort of feels like it's ready to, to move. So this is a penultimate episode of the book known as Ithaca. Ithaca after the home of Odysseus who returns to Ithaca at the end of the Odyssey. And this is... Leopold Bloom at the end of his Odyssey returning home to his Ithaca. And Anne, this again is one of those episodes which is written in a very kind of unusual style. It's a, it's a yes. kind of question and answer, isn't it? It's a slightly sort of clipped interlocutor. It keeps asking questions and then a very pedantic responder. So what is Joyce doing in this, in this episode? It's question and answer, as you say, catechistic. And increasingly, the styles take over in the latter half of Ulysses, but they're also interrogating things. The episodes are getting longer and longer, and they are establishing more of the world of the novel for us. And belatedly, in Ulysses, we learn a lot more about the, the characters, so a lot of the details of Leopold Bloom um, are filled in, actually, in the Ithaca episode. Lots of other details are filled in, too. It's an episode that thinks about science. Bloom turns on the tap, for instance, so you get a long description of the origins of water. In Do- it's comic on that level <laughs> yes, as well. Yes, it's sort of crazily encyclopedic, isn't it? Yes, um, but we learn everything uh, about Bloom's measurements, the books in his library... Um, yes, so initially they, they get into the house eventually, and um, Bloom makes a cup of cocoa for Stephen and in the kitchen. And then they go out into the backyard, rather like the yard we're, we're standing in now, and they sort of look up at the stars, and there's a whole section sort of where the universe is suddenly looked at as a kind of yes. cosmos, and then they look down at the ground, and it goes down into the sort of uh, yes. molecules of the... They urinate together. And they <laughs> urinate together in the back garden here. And then, at one point, um, Stephen decides to leave, and this is his exit from the novel, and he goes out of the back gate of the yard, you can imagine him leaving from the space we're standing in now, and the the description of his parting is uh, the sound of the double reverberation of retreating feet on the heaven-born earth, the double vibration of a Jew's harp in the resonant lane. But now we're really approaching the end of the novel, and Bloom, you know, he's exhausted, it's late at night, it's time to go to bed, and he goes and lies down in the bed with Molly. So for this final episode, episode 18, Penelope, which takes place in the marital bed, but then through flashbacks in all sorts of other places, 
why don't we move to a different location? <laughs> Let's head back into the uh, Joyce Centre and find somewhere to finish uh, the story. We're going right up the stairs, so get your, your thighs of steel. So, Dorinda, we've come up to the top of the James Joyce Centre to an amazing little hidden alcove with a, with a single bed in it. What is this room? How have you, how have you made it up? This room uh, is a recreation of one of Joyce's rooms in Trieste. Uh -huh. uh, during his time there, you can see the, the lovely Italian dark wood of yes. the furniture and the beautiful lace on the windows. Um, pictures of Joyce's children and Nora and a clatter of books everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a beautiful, beautiful space and it's a perfect kind of stand-in for this, our final episode in the novel which of course takes place in the bed of Leopold and Molly Bloom um, at the top of their house on Eccles Street. Now this episode is perhaps one of the most famous from the novel I'd say. It's a, it's a soliloquy which occurs inside Molly's head. It's famously got very little punctuation. It's, it's almost entirely one sentence really. You know we've talked a little bit about the streams of consciousness inside this novel, but this is the kind of stream of consciousness par excellence at the end. It's a real tour de force, this piece of writing. And we're introduced to this bed before we see it, because in the previous episode, it's introduced as the bed of conception and of birth, of consummation of marriage and of breach of marriage. So this bed is the kind of nexus of the relationship between Leopold and Molly. It's all yes. happened here on this spot. Oddly, Molly seems hardly ever to leave that bed. <laughs> um, so it puts the, the main female character in Ulysses in an odd position. Uh, as we've been talking about earlier, she's always off stage. We only see her in parts and arm. As an episode, it falls outside the schema. It's at some indeterminate time, is what I mean by that. It's somewhere in the middle of, of the night. Molly falling asleep, uh, thinking unconsciously, going beyond consciousness into some other zone. And she has a very um, striking history. Um, she's actually more Jewish than Bloom himself, in that we've, we discover she has a Jewish mother, Lunita Laureda. And she thinks back to her memories of Gibraltar as well she as... She grew up in Gibraltar, right? Yes. Quite an exotic location. Yes, so she has a Spanish, Jewish, Irish um, background. And she's thinking about her early loves in Gibraltar and her life as a young girl um, there, as well as her meetings with Bloom. And the kind of language that she uses is very striking, of course. Um, Joyce purportedly was imitating Nora's style to a degree, producing a kind of feminine discourse in um, this loosened up language. And there's some kind of sense in which everything is relaxing now at this hour of the night as author joins forces with this female other voice, takes over the novel, but ends it wonderfully with these yeses, which might mean anything. They seem, of course, affirmatory um, to mm -hmm. us. But Joyce said he chose yes because it was the least emphatic word in the English language. <laughs> when I put the rose in my hair like the Andalusian girls used, or shall I wear a red yes? and how he kissed me under the Moorish wall, and I thought, well, as well, him as another. And then I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes, 
And then he asked me, would I? Yes, to say, yes, my mountain flower. And first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume, yes. And his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. There's something about a signature towards the future at the end of Ulysses that Joyce very definitely wanted to have there as a sense of an ending. So not closure, a future is opening up. Uh-huh. I love that idea of, of this final outpouring, of being a kind of freeing and a, and a looking to the future. Because now that we've reached the end of this enormous novel, maybe this is the moment to think about how it has continued to live beyond the pages and over the years. And, and talk a bit about its legacy. I mean, one of the ways in which Ulysses famously remains alive is that every year on Bloomsday, great celebrations occur across the city of Dublin. And Durinna, I know the Joyce Centre is really sort of integral to those celebrations. So can you describe what happens on Bloomsday? What kind of things go on in Dublin? Dublin comes alive on Bloomsday. It really is extraordinary. From Sandy Cove to Sandy Mount to Hoth Head and everything in between, people just come to Dublin from all over the world um, or Dubliners themselves put on a hat. They join with friends. They have a picnic. They, they sing the songs from the novel. They read extracts. And then they'll go to more organised events that, that happen to be on, theatre performances, concerts. People want to have their own odyssey on that day to follow the, the journeys that are, are, are through the book. So what strikes me always is the rest of the year, people think it's unreadable and so difficult <laughs> and nobody knows. And for that day, everybody is a, a Joycean scholar <laughs> and everyone has their favourite song and everybody is a Molly or a Blazes. Or <laughs> well, so, well, so listeners, you know what to do next June 16th and where you want to be. You want to be here in Dublin. Aww. My final question is, uh, how do you feel the legacy of Ulysses has changed over the years? And, and do you think it's going to continue changing? I think it has certainly changed from the initial reactions, which we talked about a little bit earlier. It's not a dirty, scandalous um, book for us anymore. It's still radical and revolutionary. It's been hugely influential. So I think you could scarcely find an artist of any ilk, uh, composers, or uh, visual artists, painters, writers, certainly, who have not been influenced by Joyce in some way. Um, so he's be- become part of the DNA of 20th century and 21st century literature. And Ulysses always depends on its readers. Joyce turned his readers into co-creators of the, the text. So an element that I think keeps renewing itself and won't go away is the, um, the joy, the pleasure, the obsessional devotion of the discovery of Joyce and Ulysses and everything that one finds uh, in, in this novel. And then changes, I think changes will happen to the degree that it's a novel that mirrors us as well as we read it. So we bring our concerns um, to the novel. 
Um, so new views of sexuality, current concerns with the environment and questions of, of justice now motivate, I think, new readings of Ulysses and of Finnegan's Wake in turn. Um, so the novel changes us, certainly, as we read it, but we also change the, the readings that are possible of the novel because of our own particular interests and where we are historically. And thank you. It reminds me of uh, the line from Richard Ellman's biography where he says that Joyce's heroes are not easy liking, his books are not easy reading. He does not wish to conquer us, but to have us conquer him. There are, in other words, no invitations, but the door is ajar. And I hope that this um, conversation today will help future readers to push that door further open and walk in to Seven Eccles Street, perhaps. Well... Irena, thank you so much for welcoming us into the James Joyce Centre. It's been a wonderful place to finish our tour of Dublin today. And thank you so much for being with us today. You've been a wonderful guest, and it's been such a pleasure exploring Joyce's Dublin with you. Thank you. Many thanks to Professor Anne Fogarty, Dorina Gallagher and the James Joyce Centre, Seamus Cannon and the Friends of Joyce Tower Society, to the Penguin Audio team for the clips of Patrick Gibson's reading of the novel, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'll leave you with this. In 1922, the young critic Arthur Power visited Joyce in Paris. Joyce pointed out of the window of his apartment at the son of the concierge who was playing on the steps. One day, he said, that boy will be a reader of Ulysses. Joyce wrote his book for ordinary readers. He gave a signed first edition to his favourite waiter at Fouquet's restaurant. I know it is no more than a game, wrote Joyce while he was working on Finnegan's Wake. But it is a game that I've learned to play in my own way. Children may just as well play as not. The ogre will come in any case. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.